ready for true happiness, for deep fulfillment, for feeling alive, on purpose, and in control of your life again, it's time to be the bold, brilliant, beautiful woman you were born to be. Welcome to the Purpose Girl Podcast. I'm women's happiness and life purpose expert, Karen Rockheim, and I'm going to teach you how to live on purpose, feel alive, and be happy in every aspect of life. I'm going to get real about my life and interview women who are living on purpose so that you can finally live yours. Welcome to the show. Hello, my love. So people ask me all the time, what's the one thing I have to do to be happy? Just give me the one silver bullet. And I can give you lots of silver bullets. And then what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to apply it for yourself, right? Because each of us is different. You are going to like different activities than I like. What I can do is I can give you what the research says about the various pathways to happiness. And then you can take each of those pathways and you can apply it to your own life. That's what I do. That's what I do with clients. And so what we're going to be doing here on the Purpose Girl podcast is Today kicks off a six-part series, taking you through a different aspect, a different pathway to happiness, to human flourishing. And each one is going to be based in the research and is going to give you tools. And we're going to use the prominent theory in happiness called PERMA-V, P-E-R-M-A-V. And so you're going to want to listen to this whole podcast today, this episode, because I'm going to take you through the first pathway to happiness and give you purpose power tools at the end. And then every other week when I do my solo episode, I'm going to take you through the next aspect and the next aspect. And what I want you to do is to listen to the full episode and then do the tools so that you can start applying this to your own life. And after a series of a couple of months, or if you're binge listening, then in a day, you will have those tools that you can then take out to make your own life happier and maybe to help other people's lives be happier as well. So I want to take you back to why positive psychology was created or given a name in the first place. So if we go back to pre-World War II, psychology had several aims. One of those aims of the field was to cure mental illness. Another aim was to recognize and support genius. Another aim was to help communities and individuals and organizations flourish. But after World War II, soldiers were coming back home from war, and there was so much anxiety, so much depression, so much post-traumatic stress disorder, that all of the money, all of the research went to understanding and curing these mental illnesses. And thank goodness that it did, because we now have something called a diagnostic and statistical manual, which if you go to a therapist and they have to diagnose you with some sort of disorder in order to be paid by insurance, we now have that manual and now understand a variety of mental illnesses, super important. But what was lost in that was understanding what makes people well, right? And the absence of illness is not wellness. So just because you don't have diabetes or cancer doesn't mean you're healthy, right? To be healthy, you have to eat well, you have to exercise. And there was a realization in the field 20 years ago in 1998 by a famous professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Martin Seligman, that 
we need to focus as much on wellness as we do on illness, right? I like to think of it as what's the equivalent of the salad for your mental health? What is the equivalent of the treadmill for your emotional health? And if we can understand the wellness aspect and we can put it into a laboratory, which is now what's happened, just like, you know, psychologists were studying depression and studying anxiety, if they can study wellness, then we can understand it. So that's what started happening. The field of positive psychology was born. Researchers all over the world started researching and putting these different principles into science. And over time, various theories have been created and tested to understand what makes us flourish, what makes us truly happy. In fact, one of the things that this field has really uncovered is to shift our language from happiness, which people think of as a yellow smiley face, just be happy, right? It's like a bumper sticker. Well, bumper sticker shit doesn't work. We all know that. It's like a nice platitude, but it's not going to lead to the lasting fulfillment, the lasting joy, the lasting pleasure, the lasting satisfaction that we all want in life. So rather, early in the field, researchers started shifting from kind of simple happiness, right, which you might find in pleasures like chocolate and sex and buying a new pair of shoes, all of which are wonderful. I love all those things. But to a deeper happiness, a more soul-fulfilling happiness, because what was identified is there's something called a hedonic treadmill, which is that we always say, I'll be happy when, right? So I'll be happy when I get a bigger apartment. I'll be happy when I make another $10,000. I'll be happy when I get a boyfriend. I'll be happy when I get a girlfriend, And then you get that thing and you are happier, right? If I give you a $10,000 raise right now, you would be happier. But how long would it last, right? It's not lasting. Taxes get taken out. It gets spread out over 12 months. And then let's say your car breaks down and next thing you know, your $10,000 is almost worth nothing, right? And even if your car didn't break down, you adjust to it. We all adjust to our new levels of pleasure. And then we want more. And then we want more. It's how the brain works. And so we are living in a culture, in a society that is based on getting more and more and more. If I just get more money, if I just get a better job, if I just get a bigger title, I'll be happier. Well, the research has actually been pretty clear. What was happening back in the late 90s, the economy, at least in the United States and other Western cultures, was really good. It was the dot-com boom. People were making money left and right. I quit my really safe, secure job to go work for a dot-com startup and was running around the house once naked. I remember saying, I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm going to be a millionaire. And then, of course, three months later, the company bombed. But it was that time. People were making lots of money. And just as the economy was on the rise, so was depression. And happiness, according to Gallup, had flatlined. So Having more stuff, the hedonic treadmill, as they call it, does not make us happier. It just keeps us on a treadmill. So research started really looking at, well, what actually would make us happier and shifting the language from simple happiness to what Aristotle referred to as eudaimonia, which translates into well-being or flourishing, right? What would it really mean to flourish, to thrive? It means expanding. It means growing. It means a deep satisfaction. It means fulfillment. And that's going to make you a lot happier than the simple happy pleasures. We need both. We want both. I totally want you to have a great sex life, as you know, because we do a sex episode every once in a while here on the Purpose Girl podcast. 
Totally want you eating your chocolate. I have chocolate every day. Totally want you having pleasure. And I want you having the deeper happiness as well. And so a more recent theory in flourishing, all based on the research, is what is called PERMA-V, P-E-R-M-A-V. And these are six different aspects, six different components, or six different pathways to flourishing that's all based in the research. So every other week, I'm going to present to you another one of these aspects for you to learn about and for you to incorporate into your own life. And here's what they stand for. P stands for positivity. So it's having more positive emotions than negative emotions, having a more positive mindset than a more negative mindset. The E is for engagement. So being really engaged in your life, mindfulness, living according to your strengths, being in flow or in the zone, having activities where you lose track of time. The R is relationships, healthy, nourishing, flourishing relationships. M is meaning and purpose, that your life has a sense of making a difference, something bigger than yourself. The A is accomplishment and achievement, having a really healthy sense of pride in what you've achieved, knowing that you went for your goals, you went all the way. And V for vitality, physical vitality and your health, your physical health. So today we're going to focus on the P which is all about positivity. Now, positivity is a word that almost makes me a little bit sick. (laughs) And I hesitate even saying it. I need a better word for it. But that is what the research calls it. So I'm going to use it as well. The reason it makes me a little sick is that people think it's just positive thinking, like that Stuart Smiley guy on Saturday Night Live, like, look in the mirror and just say these positive things to yourself. Or it's just positive thinking, Pollyanna, like never actually face the dark side, never actually face your own grief, never face your sadness, like smile all the time, yellow smiley faces. And that is not what positivity means here, right? We want to get rid of that. And listen, it's something I used to strive for. I was a really happy kid. I was such a happy kid. My family used to think I was really naive because I always saw the best in people. I always knew a rainbow's going to come after the rain. Like I only focused on what was good. I was kind of annoyingly happy as a child. And my sister used to even tell her friends in college that I farted rainbows and puppy dogs. (laughs) And I guess that there was a period of time when I did, you know, maybe before life really hit me, before my first love abused me and before I got divorced and before life hit. But we aren't talking about that kind of positivity because that's unhealthy. What positivity actually means here is having more positive emotions than negative emotions, having more gratitude than resentment, having more joy than grief and rage. What we know is that we all, every single human, has something called negativity bias. It is part of who we are. And what that means is that our brain goes negative before it goes positive, that our brain wants to spend more time in negativity. I think I've told you this research study before, but there was a study where people walked into a research lab and around the room were signs, opportunity, threat, opportunity, threat, opportunity, threat. And then they walked out of the room and were asked which sign was there more of, more opportunities or more threats. And overall, the research participants thought that there were more threat signs, when in reality, it was in equal numbers. It's just that our brain is more geared to look for the threat because thousands of years ago, our ancestors back in the sub-Saharan African jungle where they 
lived and survived with saber-toothed tigers and dinosaurs, they had to constantly be on the lookout for threat. Constantly. Am I going to be eaten tonight? Is my, does my family have enough food to make it through the harsh evening, to make it through the winter? Will we survive here? So we all have this negativity bias. So here's a great exercise for you. Sit down with a piece of paper or think in your own mind if you're driving. And I want you to think of as many emotion words as you can, just as many emotion words for any kind of emotion. And then when you're done, maybe give yourself like a two minute timeline, time frame. When you're done, go ahead and add up how many of those are quote unquote positive emotions, feelings of joy and happiness, serenity, peace, and how many are quote unquote negative emotions like anger and stress, grief. If you're like most people, you will end up with more negative emotions than you will positive emotions. As an example, what we know from the dictionary, if you open a dictionary, there are more words for negative emotions than there are for positive. And this has been replicated. This is a research study that's been replicated all over. Our brain goes to the negative first. We have more words for that. And it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. But just because it's normal doesn't mean it's healthy. Right? It's like my dear friend, Amelia Zivotovskaya, who created the Certificate in Applied Positive Psychology program that I teach in. She says, it's like having an old brain in a new world. So it was helpful for our ancestors to have that threat negativity bias all the time. But it's not so helpful now. Right? And we know how that shows up. We all have the person in our life who constantly thinks that they're a victim. Right? Maybe for you, it's your mom. Maybe for you, it's a friend from high school. Whoever it is, someone who's constantly seeing themselves as a victim, constantly in negativity. Or maybe it's someone at the office and you just like, you would do anything to not be cornered in the bathroom with this person or to not be cornered, right, in the lunchroom. Please don't ask me out to lunch because you just know it's going to be all negativity all the time. Take a moment and think about what the content of your own brain is. How much time does your brain go to the negative? Where you're in the shower and you're only focused on that your butt is getting flabbier and you've got cellulite or that your belly is big or you look in the mirror and you're only focused on the gray hairs, right? Our brain spends a lot of time in negativity bias. So it's normal. It's just not healthy. It's not helpful. And so what positivity means in this aspect, this pathway to flourishing is to have a sense of how your brain works And to learn how to control your brain, to learn how to be the one who is in charge so that you have a healthy mindset, so that you're able to shift it. And this aspect, this pathway to flourishing really gets down to your mindset, not faking it, but having accuracy. Because of the negativity bias, our brain is telling us lies all the time, right? Let's say you're walking down the street and a friend of yours passes you without saying hello. What do you think? Well, most people, not all people, most people think, what did I do wrong? Are they mad at me? Or blame the other person. What a bitch. Can't believe it. As opposed to accurate thinking, which is we don't know what was going on with her. She may have just gotten the news that her mother was ill. She may be in her own mind, probably is, with a lot of negativity. So what we want to do here is we want to have a sense of accurate thinking, not fake, 
but accurate because the fact is that your brain is mostly telling us lies all day long. It's a survival mechanism. So part of understanding this pathway to flourishing is understanding how your brain works. That kind of the oldest part of our brain, the part that is connected to the brain stem, is often called a reptilian brain because reptiles have it too. It's the part of your brain that is responsible for survival. So it's constantly on the lookout for threat. And it's actually the smallest part of the human brain. But because it is connected to your brainstem and your nervous system, your central nervous system, it's what puts you on high alert and threat negativity all the time. And so what we want to do is we want to learn how to exercise our prefrontal cortex, which is the larger part of your brain, the human brain, that can have more accurate thinking. What happens is when we're in a negative state, when we have negativity on the brain, we are in stress mode which is survival, fight, flight, freeze, right? It's like constantly, well, this is wrong and that is wrong. And and I'll tell you, I have been having a really hard time sleeping lately. I've been getting up at three or four in the morning and unable to go back to sleep because my brain goes on and on about everything that I have to do, everything that I haven't yet done, and several different stories about how people have wronged me, or how I have wronged other people. It has been literal hell in my brain the last few days. And so what's happening when I'm waking up is that I'm in stress mode. I'm in fight flight. I'm in that anxiety. And it literally feels like I'm going to die, right? Like as if a saber-toothed tiger is coming to eat me right in that moment. And if I were out in the jungle and there were a tiger, not a saber tooth anymore, but there were a tiger or a bear that was coming to eat me, then that thinking would be super helpful because that thinking would make me like what happens is when you're in the negativity place in that stress fight flight mode, what happens is that your brain literally narrows. It cuts off all systems. It cuts off your digestive system. It cuts off your reproductive system. The only thing, adrenaline gets pumped through your body. You get a shot of cortisol, which creates adrenaline, which allows you to have the fight. So you can fight off the predator or you can flee, you can run. So that's a super helpful response if you are in the jungle and there's a bear coming at you or you're walking in a dark alley tonight and there's someone coming at you. I want you to have that stress response, but it's not so healthy at three in the morning. It's not so healthy When we come home and we see, and you see your kids leave their shoes all over the floor, their socks all over their bedroom, and you treat it the same way as you treat a bear or tiger coming at you. If you're doing that, it's normal. It's just not necessarily healthy. So what's happening there, and we don't even, in that mode, you don't even have access to your higher level thinking. You can't like even think about, okay, this is not as big of a deal. And how do I want to handle this? Because the brain literally goes into that fight flight mode. It's like getting an email from your boss at five o'clock on a Friday, I need to talk to you Monday, right? It puts you in that, oh my God, fight, flight. So that's what's very normal. If we're in that all the time, and unfortunately, the majority of us are, because the way our world is set up where we are just racing, racing, racing to the next thing, racing, racing, racing to do better, to have more. And we're constantly in this place of stress. What's happening there is we're not our best selves. We are only our reactive selves, right? I know that when I'm in that place, then I react. I get angry quickly, right? I have a big temper. 
So you're not your best self. And this pathway to flourishing is to shift from being in reactive mode to being in, and and you're not so best self, to being in your best self, showing up in the world the way you want to show up, responding to triggers instead of reacting so harshly. So because of survival, that's what negativity does to the brain, puts you into that fight flight mode which is not our best. So there was a question by a researcher then at the University of Michigan, now at the University of North Carolina, Barbara Fredrickson, who said, well, if we understand why we have negative emotions for survival, and if we believe that everything we have, we need, like we are the product of years of survival, what happens is we take the adaptations that our ancestors needed to survive. So Whatever you have, you needed to survive, right? Every aspect of being human. So she said, then what, what's the evolutionary purpose? What's the point of positive emotions? Why do we have joy? Why do we have serenity? Why do we have peace? Like, what is the purpose? And in doing years of research, what she found is that positivity played a role in survival because positivity helped us to build relationships. Positivity helped us to expand our brains, helped us to think more broadly, helped us to be more creative and better problem solvers. So if it was just me in the jungle, who's going to win? You or me, right? Then it's like survival the fittest. But when we were against saber-toothed tigers and against dinosaurs, it became a group, us versus them. And so we needed to bond. We also, the way that we deliver babies, we needed the whole tribe to raise our baby and to care for our baby. We needed other people to survive. Research shows that when you are induced with positivity, like in a research lab, you might watch puppies play, or you might watch a funny little video, or they might give you a gift because that induces positivity, or you might do a loving kindness meditation. And then you go into a brain scan. What that shows is that when you are in a positive state, your prefrontal cortex, the human part of your brain, the part of your brain that can say, okay, those socks aren't such a big deal. It's not going to kill us. Or can say, you know what? My boss probably just wants to talk about the budget on Monday. The part of your brain that can say about your friend passing you on the street, you know what? I know her mom is is ill. I'm going to give her a break. So your human brain on positive emotions lights up in a brain scan. So what this means is that we need to get control, a huge pathway to happiness, to flourishing, is to understand how your brain works and get control of the negativity and induce and create more positivity in your life. Because what the research shows is that when you are in a positive state, your brain literally broadens its perspective and builds resources, builds financial resources, builds creative resources, builds personal relationships, it builds resources for the future. A major way then is to ensure that every day you are experiencing more positivity than negativity. Because of negativity bias, what the research has found is that you can be having an amazing day, it can be so awesome, and then you're driving home and you someone cuts you off, or you get a phone call and someone's being a bitch to you. That takes over so much of the brain that you forget about the 20 moments that came before it, that you were doing well, that you were positive. The negative is so strong. So what the research shows, what we need is more positive on the brain than negative on the brain, which means that we've got to use discipline. So a major way to do this is with gratitude. 
So because of that hedonic treadmill where you're always trying to like have more and do more and be more and get more, what the research finds is that instead, if you can be in a place of appreciation of what is, right? I like to think of it as both. Have major delicious gratitude and appreciation of what is while also holding a vision of a delicious future. That's the winning combination. But most of us are only focused on the future or the past, and we need to be more in the moment in gratitude for what is. What we know about gratitude is it does something that is called creates an upward spiral of positivity, where I'm grateful, and let's say I'm grateful to you, and then that makes you feel good, and then you keep spreading it on. It also works within yourself. So every day, I take time after my meditation, and I write down what I'm grateful for. And what the research shows is if you write down three things that you're grateful for every day for a month, it will actually have lasting benefits up to six months. What I like to do is I began doing this with just one thing, one thing I was grateful for, one thing I was proud of, and one thing I was excited about. And it just, if you do that in the morning, it just primes your brain for positivity. First of all, it gets you excited, right? Let's say you hate your job or it's even just mediocre, or you're just like, I want to stay in bed. If you have something that you're looking forward to, that begins your day on a totally different foot. And when you're in that place, imagine how you're then going to approach other people. Imagine how you're then going to show up in the office. And what the gratitude is doing is making you appreciate what you do have. And I have found that the more gratitudes I do every day, the better I feel. So I'm now up to writing like a page of gratitude every single day. Here's the kicker with gratitude. I gave this exercise once to a client and we were working together for three months, which is my Purpose Girl coaching program. And after about maybe like eight, it's 12 sessions. And after about maybe eight, she said to me, I have to be honest with you. I hate doing gratitude. And I said to her, oh my God, what did you tell me? You know, it's not a one size fits all. Okay. And she wasn't doing it. So this might be for you. It might not. We know what the research says. I want you to try it out there. You know, the key is you got to mix it up. If every single day you just say, I'm grateful for my kids. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for my house. You're going to get bored really quickly and you're not going to feel anything. So you actually have to find the things that you're like actually grateful for that are true for you and are different every day. So get into the specifics. You're grateful that you listen to this podcast. You're grateful that your friend Joanne called you. You're grateful for the delicious strawberry that was so sweet in your mouth. And if you want to be grateful for something like your kids, I love that. It's amazing. I want you also to put it on yourself. I see this all the time with women. I'm grateful for my kids. I'm grateful for my kids. Of course you are. Of course you are. As someone who has not been able to have kids yet, I, I, of course you're grateful for your kids. But that is not touching at the deep gratitude that's going to change your life. What you want to do is get specific. What about the child? Are you grateful? Are you grateful for his sense of humor? Are you grateful for how kind she is? Are you grateful for what is it? And then I want you to start taking some credit. So this is something I give to whenever I do a talk with women or a workshop, you got to start taking some credit for your whatever you're grateful for your kids. So if you're grateful that your kids are really kind and generous, shift it on yourself and say, and I'm grateful for how I raised them to be kind and generous, right? Let it work for you. What we know is that gratitude, it not only increases your positivity, it enhances your whole experience of life. It counters that hedonic treadmill I was talking about, and it decreases some of the stress and some of the social comparison. And you can play with this. I like to play with all of the emotions, all of the positive emotions. So let's say it's inspiration. So take a week and every day write out what inspires you or who inspires you. Or let's say it's joy. 
Start taking stock. When do I feel joy? What activities make me feel joyful? Who makes me feel joyful? And then guess what? Start doing more of those things. And like I said, I like to mix it up with gratitude and pride. And the reason pride is so important, especially as a woman, is that most women have a very hard time saying anything nice about themselves, right? Most of us were taught, don't brag, don't say anything nice. It's boastful. It's arrogant. It's egotistical. Bullshit. Bullshit. But I get it. Me too. So, but when you can have a healthy sense of pride, right? This is one of the reasons why women make less than men is we're not proud of our accomplishments. We think someone's going to notice it. We have to be the ones who tell others. We have to go into our boss and say, I got this awesome email from the client. They're so happy. Or I just did an amazing phone call. Here's what I did. And it's going to be uncomfortable. The more you can have a sense of pride, one of my mentors, Regina Thomas-Shower, calls it bragging. She has us brag to each other every day. My girlfriends and I from that program, we brag to each other. We send each other brags. It's so fun. And I know it's going to seem so uncomfortable, right? So you want to get into this place of the positivity. You want to juice up your brain with excitement, with desire, with serenity, with interest. At the back of Barb Fredrickson's book, Positivity, which is a great book, she has an exercise called a positivity portfolio. And it's you choose one of these emotions for a week and you get everything together like into a folder or you could do it on Pinterest or you could do a physical like envelope or a physical box of everything that reminds you of inspiration, everything that inspires you, different quotes, different songs. And then you spend some time every day and you look at it and just do that for a week and you'll be amazed at how you begin to shift your overall sense of well-being, your overall flourishing. What we know from the research is that because of negativity bias, about two-thirds of the people, two-thirds of people are more pessimistic than optimistic, right? We all know those people and we have all been that person before. Most of us have, right? I When I worked in, in corporate, my last job, I remember I would there was someone who I would work with and every time I had an idea, they would say, well, we tried that three years ago or that would never work because... It was like, I just wanted to put my head between my legs and just never come up with an idea again. There was always pessimism. And then I started looking around and I noticed how many people were doing this. It's so natural for us to just be pessimistic. Now, realistic is great. It's, you know, but who's to say that it's more realistic to be pessimistic, to be negative than it is to be optimistic? I'm not telling you to be pie in the sky and right. And so what we know from the research is that a pessimistic mindset or pessimistic thinking style is when you see adversity as permanent, it's always going to be this way, pervasive. It's going to ruin my life and personal. I did something. I'm so awful. And I was working with a client who lost her job. And this is what she was saying. Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to feed my children anymore. We're going to end up in a cardboard box. And is she really going to end up in a cardboard box? No. But she, her brain was taking over and going on and on and on. It was this pessimistic and gave her nowhere to go from that. We can't go anywhere if we're in that place, right? Marilee Adams calls it a judger pit. I talked about this on the Q&A episode a couple of weeks ago. So there's nowhere to go from that. So instead, we want to shift it to optimistic thinking. Optimistic thinking says when there is adversity, rather than seeing it as permanent, you see it as temporary. Rather than seeing it as pervasive, that it's going to ruin everything in your life, you see it as isolated. And rather than see it as personal, that you suck or the boss sucks, 
you see it as not necessarily personal, that it just is what it is. When you make this mind shift about how you approach adversity into temporary, isolated, not necessarily personal, you will have major shifts in your life. And the research is really interesting about this. It actually shows that people who have an optimistic thinking style, it adds nine years to your life. Or said the other way, people with a pessimistic thinking style, it causes so much additional stress on the body, which causes so much more cortisol, which becomes poison in your body. It adds so much pressure on your blood vessels that it leads to cardiovascular issues. There's so much benefit to being optimistic and pessimistic that pessimism actually can take about nine years off of your life, which is the same as smoking. So this is really important. And what you can do is just practice it. Practice this thinking that I'm recommending to you. The last piece I want to offer to you, there's so much we could talk about with positivity, is about really getting hold of your thoughts. Every thought you have leads to a feeling. And every feeling you have leads to a behavior. I was doing this with a workshop, a group of HR executives, where I asked them to make a circular drawing where there's a T at the top. And you can do this yourself. There's a T at like 12 o'clock if you think about making a clock. And an F as in Frank at about 4 o'clock. And a B as in boy around 8 o'clock. And you draw circular arrows between them. Every thought leads to a feeling. And every feeling leads to the behavior. And the behavior leads back to a thought. So if the thought is... I'll never get the promotion. Then the feeling, how would that make you feel? It make me sad. It make me feel defeated. Make me feel bummed out. Make me feel kind of like a loser. And then when you have those feelings, what behavior do you take? Then you don't really go for it. You probably procrastinate and watch some Netflix instead of working on your resume. Maybe you don't go for the job at all. And then when you don't go for the job, then what's the new thought that comes from that? I knew I couldn't do it. It was, see, it was stupid. I'm a loser. And it repeats. But imagine if you just shifted the thought and the thought was, I can totally get that job. I'm super qualified. Then the feeling is excitement is pride. And then the behavior is putting together the resume and going for it. So we have to be masters at getting control of the thoughts. So this positivity, this first pathway to flourishing, isn't Pollyanna fake. It is checking ourselves for reality because you have to be able, if you cannot convince yourself, if a, a belief is a thought that you have repeated to yourself so much that you it's now ingrained. And if you just keep thinking to yourself, I can't get the job, I can't get a promotion, I can't get a promotion. So a client of mine came to me and this was what she thought. She had been working for a company for 10 years, had never been promoted and just said, well, I can't get promoted, I can't get promoted, I can't get promoted. And looking at it, she was just doing self, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Therefore, she wasn't talking to anyone about getting a promotion. She wasn't talking about her strengths. She wasn't showing up in her office as her best self. She wasn't suggesting ways that she could take on a new role. She wasn't being in her creative brilliance, which she so is. But if you have the thought and you gain, you you change your thought to what is possible about who you are and the way you do that, right? If you're like, well, I don't believe that I'm capable. So now that's a new thought. So the other tool we want to look for here is we want to be able to question our thoughts. You want to be able to say, is that true? How do I know it's true? This is work from Byron Katie. 
that I just love. Is it true that I'm not capable? How can I know it's true? I did this with a client who thought that she was going to lose her job. And I said, is it true? How can you absolutely know it's true? And she said, well, it's true because they're meeting. I see all these people meeting without me. (laughs) Can you absolutely know it's true? No. I said, well, how is it impacting you knowing that you have this thought? Well, it's making me have a nervous breakdown and feel like a loser and think I'm going to, you know, lose everything I have. So we want to be able to question our thoughts. So then I ask this question, which I love, what else is true? And when I asked her, well, what else is true? Like, okay, what is the truth? What evidence? I love finding evidence. What evidence do you have that you're losing your job? And what evidence do you have that you're not? Turns out she had gotten a big fat raise just the week before. Okay, you do not get a big fat raise and then get fired. That does not typically happen, okay? (laughs) Unless something like major happens in between you're found out for sexual abuse or something. Like typically you get a raise, they're keeping you on. So when we found evidence, she had to laugh at her pessimistic thinking style. She had to laugh at how her brain was doing that at the negativity bias. And so what we want to do is want to just look for accuracy. Ask yourself, what else? Is this true? How can I absolutely know it's true? How does it feel when you have that negative thought? And what else is true? And then when you come up with what else is true, because you have thought the negative thought so many times to yourself that it now is like an ingrained neural pathway. We have like 600 billion neurons in our brain. And the way everything works is that your neurons are constantly firing together in order to make your hands move, in order to make your ears listen, in order to have you make that ravioli, in order for you to do anything. And the more you do something, it creates like a well-worn neural pathway. You can think of it as like the first time you go out into, some people like going out into the woods and hiking on an uncharted path, right? They make their own path. Or you could think about it, some people like going once that path has been well-worn and they know that it's safe and, you know, then you can see the difference in if you're out in the forest of just walking through or you can see where somebody has walked, where people have walked thousands of times. So when you have the strong belief that you're not capable or the strong belief that you won't get promoted, that's like a well-worn pathway. And fortunately, we all have neuroplasticity. Our brains can change. But it takes choice, it takes discipline, and it takes practice, constantly repeating the new thought to yourself. So with my client who thought that she was losing her job, but had just gotten this big fat raise, the new thought is, they just gave me a raise because they think I'm awesome. They gave me a raise because I think I'm awesome. They gave me a raise because I think I'm awesome. And I had her put that everywhere she could. It became an alarm on her phone every single hour. They gave me a raise because they think I'm awesome. I had her put it as sticky notes onto her mirror. I had her put it in her day planner everywhere she could think of. Because we want to make a well-worn neural pathway with the new thought. Now, listen, doesn't mean every, the, the accurate thought is always going to be positive right? It might be, they did put me on a performance plan. Okay. That can be, accuracy is fine. But then what do we do with that? So what does that mean? What am I in control of? Because the research shows that we we are in control of our happiness, that about 40% of, of our total happiness, the difference in happiness between people, 40% is totally in your control by what you do, what you think, what you eat, how you treat your body, all the things that we're going to cover in this PERMA-V flourishing series. 
So the first thing is for you to really work with your mind, for you to get control of how is your mind going off the rails into negativity bias, and for you to start learning some of these mindset tools to bring it back, to check for accurate thinking, to then to repeat the new, more accurate thoughts all the time. Carol Dweck, who's a researcher at Stanford, has a great book called Mindset, and she talks about how we can have a fixed mindset that something you are smart or you're not, or you can have a growth mindset that you can always learn and grow. And this is why I love asking questions instead of statements like, I can't, asking, how can I? Instead of a statement like, I don't know how, asking a question, well, who does know how? Who can help me? You want to be in this growth mindset that says you can have a growth mindset about a po- about positivity that you can actually shift. So I will tell you, I like I said, when I was a kid, I was super positive, annoyingly positive. And then life has taken its its toll on me, right? Having as many traumas as I have had between abuse and divorce and miscarriage and gun robbery, where my brain now goes a lot more negative than it used to. It goes a lot more negative than it does positive. And that's why I practice this stuff every single day. Because I know from the research that having an optimistic mindset, having hope, believing in myself, shifting my mind to have thoughts about what I'm capable of, spending time with gratitude, spending time bragging about myself to myself and to my girlfriends, doing the things that bring me joy. All of that is going to make me happier. It does make me happier. All of that means I'm going to flourish more. So this has been your first installment, the P in PermaV, your first installment of our new flourishing series. And here are your purpose power tips. Number one, I want you to get hold of how is negativity bias showing up in your life? Are you negativity biasing towards your body? Are you negativity biasing, I'm making up that word, in your mind and all the things that you think? How is it showing up for you? And then how would you like to shift it? Number two, start paying attention and noticing where you have a pessimistic mindset. Uh, In other words, where when adversity comes, are you taking it as permanent and pervasive? And make a chart. I love on the left side, you would write the permanent pervasive personal thought when adversity strikes. On the right side, you would write the optimistic thinking style thought, which is how it's temporary, right? So you can do this with a job loss, loss of a, a boyfriend. You can do it with any sort of adversity. Friend doesn't call you back. What would pessimistic thinking say? What would optimistic thinking say? And then start to train your brain in thinking in the positive. Number three is I want you to start working on your positivity. I want you to choose an emotion like serenity, if you need more serenity in your life and do the positivity portfolio that I mentioned to you, gather all the pictures and music and maybe it's bath salts that make you feel serene and then do that every day for a week. Or maybe you want to do it with laughter and joy, all the people that bring you laughter, all the people that bring you joy and do that for a week and watch what happens. And I'll give you a fourth purpose power tip. I've said it a couple of times, but you want to start every morning with what you're grateful for, what you're proud of, and what you're excited about. It will shift you and it's a major pathway to flourishing. So I hope that you've enjoyed this first installment of our flourishing series. I love, love, love talking to you about all this stuff, as you can tell. If you want more, the Certificate in Positive Psychology program is starting. You want to find that at getcertifiedinpp.com. 
Of course, if you want more from me, sign up for my newsletter, get your free living on purpose guide at purposegirl.com. Follow me on Instagram at Karen Rockhind or on Facebook at Coach Karen Rockhind or join our Facebook group totally free called Purpose Girls. And every week I post different quotes or different questions to get you thinking about what you want that week and get you thinking about how to be happier and live on purpose. We have Women's Global Happiness Day coming up on October 18th, and you're going to want to participate in that either by talking about it on social media, joining an event, hosting an event. You can find out more on my website, purposegirl.com, or you can go to womenshappy.com. So lots of exciting things happening here. And our next installment in the series will be coming out in two weeks, which is the E for engagement, how to really have a life where you are present, how to have a life where you are kind of using all of your yumminess, knowing your strengths. So we're going to get into that next. And I hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you did, please, 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 please leave me a five-star review. I love all of your five-star reviews. It makes me so happy. Please write a review so I know what works, what you like. Please send me an email. I love hearing from you. I love your questions. We're adding them up for the next Q&A time. And please share this. Share it with your friends who are in negativity bias. Share it with your daughter or your mom or your husband who spends more time in the negativity, anybody who needs it. Share this. And that is how we are going to change the world. One woman, one person at a time. With that, may you live purposefully. May you love yourself and may you love life. Bye for now.